As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Hello, it's Monty here. Happy New Year to you all. Let's hope we can make 2021 a great one. It's 11th of January we're publishing this episode and Brexit issues have reared their ugly head, particularly for those who are trying to export to Europe. This programme is a bumper edition of On Farm, produced in association with our friends at law firm Shepherd and Wedderburn. We've got some really top-notch guests lined up. They are taking time out of their frantic schedules dealing with all things Brexit to give us an insight into what's going on both publicly and behind the scenes. The fury, and it is fury now, of fish catchers, uh, small single person companies trying to export into Europe who've had no problem for years and years and years is palpable, absolutely palpable. Tavish Scott there, former MSP, indeed a long-standing MSP, and now Chief Executive of the Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation. We warned the UK government this was going to happen. We warned any government who'd listen this was going to happen. Salmon's the number one food export from the UK. I'd like to think governments, plural, would get behind us to sort all these problems out. Archie Gibson is also with us. Archie is MD of Forfar-based Agrico. Agrico are part of Scotland's world-beating seed potato industry. They are now unable thanks to the wording of the Brexit agreement to sell to customers in Europe. And as you'll hear from Archie, there are massive worries for the industry's future. Put it this way, would you basically bury money in a field when you have no certainty as to whether you'll be able to dig it up and use it again in the future, far less sell anything from it? So, ScotGov and UKGov, I'm hoping to have a a, a meeting with uh, Fergus Ewing and uh, George Eustace telephone conversation next week. And also in this episode, we won't forget the immigration side of the Brexit story. Leaving Europe, of course, means an end to free movement of people. For many in farming and growing, it shuts off access to a ready, willing and capable workforce. What I know about farmers is that they're pragmatists. There's no point moaning about it, we just need to get on. But it is going to introduce an element of cost and an element of paperwork I think one of the other issues is whether or not the system is going to be able to supply the labour that farms and rural sector businesses need because there are limits. Jacqueline Moore. Jacqueline leads on immigration law for Shepherd and Wedderburn. But we're going to kick off with her colleague and firm partner, George Fryer. George is their lead on food and drink and is also part of their Brexit advisory team. Hi, Monty, and uh, thanks for allowing us the opportunity to speak to you. Not surprisingly, we've had a pretty busy time both since the time of the original referendum and all the way through the process, advising clients and contacts on a whole host of issues about how they might be affected. And of course, you know, a very real problem for everybody was 
what was the outcome going to be? What were the areas that people didn't know were going to be affected? And trying to unpick these against a constantly moving backdrop. George, I must say, actually, when we first spoke with you a month or so back, or well, more than that, actually, you suggested that we, we look at um, seed potatoes and, and fish in particular. From my perspective, I thought, seed potatoes, potato industry... I don't know, how are they going to be affected? And lo and behold, your advice then was was pretty much spot on. I don't know how you got the crystal ball out, but you did well. The, the thing is, there have been a lot of column inches devoted to the impact on all sorts of different sectors. And, and people talk about the food and drink sector, but of course, it's actually multiple subsectors because we've got, you know, the interests of the uh, the red meat industry. Scotland has a fantastic salmon farming and shellfish industry as well as a lot of artisanal producers. And if you just go for a wander around your local supermarket, you cannot help but see just the sheer variety of food that is available from all over the world, which in many cases is multi-ingredient. You know, everything about the Scottish food industry and indeed the UK food sector is it's all based on just-in-time. The logistics flows of lorries up and down the M6 and then across the channel is a military operation and everybody takes the well-stocked shelves for granted. But, you know, that stuff has to move just in time. And, you know, what we have now is a trade cooperation agreement, which, yes, means that there are no tariffs, but it doesn't mean that it's frictionless. And what we're starting to see are early indicators of what people forecast, namely friction, for example, in relation to shipments of uh, of fresh salmon and and shellfish. And you know, I think we're going to be talking further about that um, later in the in the chat this morning. Hold that thought, because I know we've got um, Tavish Scott from the Scottish Salmon Producers Organisation joining us uh, later, but we've got Archie Gibson and Archie. Your stock in trade in tatties, as it were, is probably not just quite what George said there in terms of just in time, but nevertheless, it's absolutely vitally important that we can export these tatties to Europe and beyond. Is that right? Very much so. I mean, well, good morning all. And uh, I should possibly explain that my role is I am the executive director of a company called Agrico UK Limited. We're owned by a Dutch farmers cooperative and have been in the UK, multiplying and supplying seed potatoes for over 30 years. Business is based in Scotland, but we produce both throughout the the UK. So there is an element of just-in-time in terms of what we do, but that misrepresents, in a way, how much time, commitment and resource and investment it takes to produce a crop of certified seed potatoes. It also possibly doesn't give the sense of how interconnected it is with big business, with, with you know, what happens in the supermarkets day to day, and indeed the regulatory environment around, uh, around that process. So it's quite a complex organism. And, and, and I think from the outset, which is why this, this prohibition as it stands at the moment on certified seed potatoes being exported into the EU is so frustrating, is that there is actually an infrastructure already very much well established and, and well connected in terms of lines of communication to sister authorities in, in on the continent and throughout the United Kingdom uh, to regulate this process. Um, so yeah, it's 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 um, it's complex animal, and I think possibly that is not seen by the public. Well, it's definitely not seen by the public. But uh, you know, officials and and politicians 
can't say they haven't been well informed about uh, what's involved and the potential downsides. Archie, we've been talking to you about potatoes and seed potatoes, but that just reminds me because your background is is in the much wider food industry. Is that right? Well, I was I was previously the chair of the Food and Drink Federation of Scotland for eight years. I was one of the original panel that that. Uh, wrote the business plan for what is now Scotland Food and Drink, so ably headed up by James Withers. And I, prior to my current role, I was um, with Baxter's. So I kind of have a good feel for the manufacturing and, and processing side of, of, of our industry as a whole. So, Archie, what's happening right now? What's happening right now with your tatties that are presumably you're trying to get to the growers indeed well obviously planting season northern hemisphere is kicking off uh, any time in the next uh, 10 to 12 weeks uh, everybody's getting prepared ordering land having land tested there's a lot of downstream activity that goes on on farm getting land ready etc etc then of course you've got to get the seed and the seed element that element can be just in time or it can be which is Fairly typical for much of the, the, the seed supplied out of Scotland into the rest of the UK on an annual basis. Just just rewinding a little bit, Archie, and, and maybe maybe George will come in on this as well, but the scale of the, the, the seed potato industry in Scotland, I mean, I I know a little bit about it. I, th- I think I do anyway. You know, we, we start off in maybe the Black Isle with, with the first generation stuff, and then it's it's grown in Angus and, and Tayside and multiplied there, and and it's it's from there that, that companies like yours will package it up for, for for export markets. Is that that's that's kind of my take on it. But the the value and the scale and the the importance of it to Scottish agriculture is is quite staggering, and maybe our listeners don't really appreciate that. Yeah, well, let's just talk about export for a second. So, there's approximately yeah, hundred thousand yeah. tons is exported out of Scotland annually. Far away, the biggest mar- single market there is is Egypt. And thereafter follows Morocco, Israel and Cyprus and other other countries. As a country, about 20,000 tons, so 20-25% goes to the EU countries and the rest is to to third countries where we have bilateral existing and long-standing bilateral supply agreements. It's probably fortunate, Archie, for you that for your largest export market, there is an Egyptian trade deal because otherwise, presumably, we would have the situation that the UK would have been having to negotiate afresh with Egypt. And no matter how willing people were to move quickly on that, you could miss the window for the export season for 2021. Very much so. And uh, I think there is also a high degree of pragmatism shown by these uh, importing countries, the Egyptians, the Moroccans and others. They, They, particularly the Egyptians and Israelis, have always sent for example, inspectors to Scotland annually to check on quality and make sure that it complies with what's called the order, which comes out of the Egyptian authorities every year. And actually that has worked well over the years, in fairness. If we take that back, though, to the position as we, we now understand it, so that with the EU, there is no provision in the trade agreement to permit seed potatoes, although potatoes for consumption, to be clear, can be exported. But for seed potatoes, I suppose, firstly, Archie, do you have any insight into why seed potatoes missed the cut here? Was it a a drop ball, an oversight? But also, what's the response of the industry? Because, you know, there must be, as you say, a, a short period before the planting season starting. And, you know, EU buyers will presumably be wanting to source potatoes. You've got potatoes 
and you can't actually send them there. Well, of course, that was the unwelcome surprise we got uh, uh, notice of on the 23rd of December, and that was then confirmed on this uh, documentation coming from the EU on the 28th of December last year. I guess, call us cynics or whatever, but the industry generally said, you know what, we're not going to sit around and assume that it's all going to fall into place comfortably and, and logically. So in many cases, for example, Agrico, we made sure our exports to the Canary Islands were largely delivered before the end of December. And, and indeed, there's some stuff that's in transit now, which is picking up a bit of extra paperwork, but we're, we're, we're on top of that. Archie, just kind of summarise then, where are we on this? What's your feeling now for the, the tarty growers and what they should be doing this coming spring here in Scotland? You know, are we... Are they going to be planting the same crops and expect that the market's there for them later this year? Well, the short answer is we won't plant the same crops unless a solution is found to this. Put it this way, would you basically bury money in a field when you have no certainty as to whether you'll be able to dig it up and use it again in the future, far less sell anything from it? And the answer is it can't make sense for farmers or businesses to plant area with good intention of supplying future customers that we might have be denied access to. So ScotGov and UKGov, I'm hoping to have a, a, a meeting with uh, Fergus Ewing and uh, George Eustace telephone conversation next week, as early as next week, with a view to putting in front of the COPAF committee in Brussels, which is one dealing with plant health, on the 28th, 29th of January, to try and get... Uh, third country equivalents for certified seed potatoes restored. If that is a failure, and if there is no good vibes coming out of that, the next time this COPAF committee meet is on the 24th, 25th of February. That would be the last moment when, frankly, the Scottish industry and the UK industry more broadly could be reassured as to whether they should plant or not as the case may be. We also, at that point in time, would need a clear undertaking from the UK Gov as to whether or not they were going to frankly prohibit imports of seeds coming in from the near continent in the end of this year beginning of next year because there are decisions for farmers in on the continent as well so my final thoughts on this are that is it was it the commission's intention to damage smes and in many cases some individual farmers who happen to have a, a good well-established export trade for their certified seed where it's in demand was it really their intention to have a go at the wee guys? I, I, I can't believe it was. I think it's anomalous that, you know, we've got to this stage. It's shameful that, you know, it's been buried in, in Annex C of the Border Control Protocol, along with weapons of mass destruction, explosives, ammunition and fisheries. It's, an, it's a nonsense and it, it can and should be sorted out. And I think, Archie, surely everybody would hope that people would recognise that there is a lose-lose situation here the challenge must be to make sure that it's dealt with in an objective, scientific way, rather than running the risk of being hijacked by politics. Because, of course, the danger of retaliatory action in relation to importation of continental potatoes is that that's exactly the kind of tit-for-tat ploy that people would not want to see happening, because then it might escalate or get coupled with something else, which nobody would presumably want. Guys, hold that thought. Hold your thoughts on tatties. Hold your thoughts on chips. We're going to the fish man now. Um, Tavish Scott, I'm delighted, has joined us. Hi, Tavish. 
Can you just give us a little bit of an introduction? And, and you've just rushed in from a meeting and tell us where you are and where um, Scottish salmon producers are at the moment in terms of Brexit. Well, you need uh, you need uh, tatties with fish. You're absolutely right, Monty. That's a starting point for all of us. But uh, yeah, I've just offered a number of series of calls this morning with both governments, both in Scotland and in, in London, about the difficulties we're having as a sector and the whole seafood sector is having in exports into the EU or into the into European countries. And the issue is, the issue is really that because the deal was signed so late in the day, no one has had a chance to test the export systems prior to them all going live. So we're really basically running from live on day one. And I have huge sympathy both for the regulators in the UK and particularly for the freight companies who are massively up against it, trying to integrate their systems into a completely new arrangement. Um, and, and thus we're all having enormous problems. It's a bit easier for salmon because normally we're filling a 40-foot truck with just one product. But if you... I'm up home in Shetland today, but if you're hauling haddock, whitefish and other species out of Shetland or, or Peterhead or uh, Loch Inver down to Lark Hall in the central belt of Scotland and then, uh, then all the way down to the, to the short crossings, the paperwork that's now being asked of us is, or of those industries is absolutely enormous and is quite different from what we were all dealing with before. So yes, hugely challenging. Not much fish has moved so far and massively difficult for the seafood industry as a whole. Tell us about that. This episode is going out on the 11th of January. You know, what are you seeing since since the since the first? Are you seeing you're seeing lorries delayed by how long? And what's the time scale at the moment? Yeah, well, we we saw the impact before Christmas, obviously, of the French border closure that uh, basically stopped uh, trade in the crucial week before Christmas for for salmon and indeed for fish more generally. Again, the week between Christmas and New Year, and then the week uh, beginning in January are all big markets or traditionally big markets for uh, in. France, Spain, Germany, um, those were all have been very limited indeed. We had some situations at, uh, at the central distribution plant in the central belt of Scotland where pretty well no lorries moved at all. And therefore, certainly in terms of salmon farming, our, our fellows were basically not harvesting. They just left the fish in the sea. More difficult, obviously, if you're a whitefish boat out of Peterhead trying to catch because do you tie up or do you or what do you do? Um, you've got quota restrictions as it is. So just enormously uh, challenging. And I think um, by the middle of January, it'll be make or break because if we can't service the market in European terms from Scotland, our good friends in Norway will seek to service that market. Our, it is an international commodity. Other people around the world will seek to service the European marketplace. And that is not good news, obviously, for, for British exports. Just give me a feel for this because I'm a sheep farmer um, and I know that, you know, I've got to produce lambs to spec. And if the lambs are out of spec, then, you know, the market's not quite as, as lucrative for them. You say, you know, you could leave salmon um, unharvested, but leaving salmon unharvested, does that put them out of spec as to what your buyers require? Well, that's a good point, Monty. I mean, my daughter runs our sheep farm at home in Shetland, so I'm very familiar with that line of argument. The The bottom line is you can leave fish in the sea and feed them less. It's just the same as your ewes putting condition on before lambing time. We can leave uh, fish in the sea uh, and not put so much condition on them. But at some point, because they're still growing to some extent, colder water, of course, at this time of year, so slower feed conversion ratio 
factors. Um, we can uh, slow the process down a bit, but ultimately our guys make money by selling fish into the into the premium marketplace in Europe by by producing to a premium, producing to a specification, and we're obviously very very close to what that specification needs to be. That's how we service the customer. So we can't let this go on, and we have we explain this in words of one syllable to every minister who would listen from Michael Gove onwards in the run up to Brexit, and uh, they all oh yes we understand the point, but you know, hey-ho, here we are and we can't get the product to marketplace in the quantities we need to. Tavish, the the thing about that as well, as you say, none of this was not uh, foreshadowed by people because the the issue was highlighted in the context of no-deal Brexit. So it does seem remarkable for the IT systems in Boulogne to be being blamed for this when the obstacles to frictionless trade of this very important product were flagged months in advance of the end of the transition. Uh, that's entirely right, George. And I think the, the key point here, and one of the ironies, of course, is there hasn't been a lot of freight moving through the Channel Tunnel or indeed across the ferry network because most hauliers um, and producers have not been going anywhere near it because they were warned there would be chaos. The chaos has not actually been caused by a build-up of traffic post the 1st of January. It's been caused by the IT systems not functioning. And again, I think that's to the original point I made. It's because we had no time to test the systems prior to the introduction of the arrangements which now have to operate in order to export salmon into the European marketplace. So well things, you know, all things being equal, should should we in a month's time start to see much more free flow? Well, frankly, we need to see that free flow from now. I mean, it needs to be happening this day. I mean, these guys are, our salmon companies are producing fish uh, through processing plants in Scotland and exporting every day. Normally, there'd be 10 to 20 uh, full 40-foot trucks of salmon heading into the European marketplace every every night across either through the Channel Tunnel or across uh, the, the Dover Straits. Now, that's just simply not happening again. And it's the point, Monty, you were making earlier on. If we don't have that, then where does this fi- this fish can sit in a cage up, up to a point, but ultimately we need to harvest it and move it into the marketplace because it backs up. It's just like your lamb production system. You know, we have small... So, in other words, we small fish growing um, in, in, in the systems that all our member companies operate, those need to go into the sea at some point and they, this will all be programmed a year in advance. So growing salmon is a three-year process. So it's just like your, your lamb or your cattle production system. You kind of keep the bull out of the park forever, as we would say at home in Shetland. So, so you know, that it knocks on, is I suppose my point I'm making. And the point is, um, Tavish, that even if you do keep the fish in cage at sea, what you've got then is just an air bubble in the pipe. Because when you harvest them, the log jam point is when they're going through the processing hubs at Lark Hall or elsewhere and making sure that they're able to be fast-tracked. And as you say, there's talk about looking to be able to fast-track or hard-shoulder, whatever you call it, the uh, full container loads of salmon. But, you know, for the smaller shellfish operators on the West Coast, that's not really practical. And um, the reports are that um, uh, trailers are having to be individually unpacked and each pallet separately certified, which, of course, adds to the time, logistical delays, and then, of course, huge frustration if somebody in good faith has attempted to process the paperwork and it's not right. What do they do? They have to get it corrected. Meantime, the stuff's sitting in a container park in central Scotland. 
Tavish, how frustrated are people? I think it's getting really to the, to the edge now. And it's, again, not so bad for the big salmon companies, but for the smaller salmon producing companies, they're caught in the situation George just, just described. But the fury, and it is fury now, of fish catchers, uh, of small single person companies trying to export into Europe who've had no problem for years and years and years and now have, and now have the kind of situation that George is describing is palpable, absolutely palpable. And I think um, we warned the UK government this was going to happen. We warned... All any government who'd listen, this was this was initial. This was going to happen. It's now happening. And if the freight companies withdraw the groupage arrangements, in other words, putting different cargos together in one lorry to get them into Europe because they simply can't cope because the the paperwork won't work, the IT systems won't work, then we as Scotland Stroke UK will not service as marketplace. Then then that's it. Then they'll find the product from elsewhere. And that's a disaster for for UK exports. Salmon's the number one food export from the UK. I'd like to. To think governments plural would get behind us to sort all these problems out. Archie, you're listening to this. So you're you're guys sharing this fury. Tavish says fury. Is that what you feel in the tatty world? There's huge frustration, Monty. Tavish is absolutely right. And it's an interesting little anecdote here, but one of the things that impacts on all this is our absence of adequate infrastructure. We talked about computer systems not not being up to the task, not tested properly, not bench checked. But also plug-in points for reefer containers or lorries. If you open a lorry up, that lorry has to keep running burning carbon in order to keep the refrigerating unit to temperature, to keep the product safe. Meanwhile, everything's pulled out, checked against its stock, you know, against the inventory and paperwork and rest of it, go back in. In the case of uh, potatoes, so we were exporting to, um, to the Canaries before Christmas. There was such logistic nightmare around availability of reefer containers. When they were available, they were available, they were in the wrong place. There's partly a COVID thing, partly a uh, you know, Brexit thing. In some cases, containers were sat on the, the, the key, not plugged in. So we had consignments that basically get CO2, uh, CO2 poisoning. They, they have no air refresh too long. Those seeds will not germinate. They are, they are living, breathing organisms. So our product's been ruined. And you, you put that on the value of, of, a, of a sea fish or a salmon or a whatever um, marine product it is, and the value starts going through the roof. And it's bad for seed potatoes, but it's really bad for fisheries. George, these things, from a legal point of view, really, from Tavish and Archie, what we're hearing about is red tape bureaucracy and computer systems holding things up. What do you think your your clients should be looking at in terms of you know trying to get through these this red tape and trying to make sure that business can flow? It's enormously challenging for them because until very recently, all that any lawyers or business advisors could do was say, you are going to have to prepare your systems and do logistics and operational planning, including contingency planning for these eventualities. But because the overarching structure of the agreement was not then known so the shape of the agreement was like an amoeba. It you know, changed in different directions all the time. You couldn't specifically say, right, we now have a set of rules. This is what you have to do. You were having to give people either ors. Well, if you end up with a no deal, you know, we were giving people advice on how they would deal with ensuring compliance with EU food laws, but looking to have appropriate, if possible, second source shipping arrangements, alternative points of entry into the EU as opposed to using the channel straits. 
These seem like superficially attractive and, if I may say, politicians' answers to the problem. But the reality is that there is only so much capacity available. It isn't practical in short haul to transfer Scottish salmon or shellfish products by air. The way the logistics industry has been set up in partnership with the production industry is refrigerated vehicles. And it's back to my point at the beginning of the chat, you know, just in time and with perishable food, you have to be able to know that it can go point to point in about 72 hours, not sit for three days at Dover. Tavis, just in time, you want to come in on that? Just the observation on George's point that obviously we export a lot of uh, salmon to the United States of America, to other countries around the world by air freight through Heathrow. Heathrow is an enormously important hub for us. Uh, one of the other aspects that's that's curtailed or made that uh, challenge more acute is COVID because uh, airlines are obviously in the financial straits they're in. We don't have so many flights we can use. There's much less freight capacity both across the Atlantic but also around the world. So that's another factor. Thus, the European markets become even more important for salmon than it was prior to prior to COVID happening. And thus, the problems that George is highlighting have become more acute. And I just make the other point, you know, two of our companies are multinational companies operating around the globe, three billion pound turnovers across their whole operation. These guys do trade as a, a you know, with their eyes closed. And yet they're running into problems here in Scotland, out of the UK, into Europe, which aren't happening around in other parts of the world. That's why there's so much worry about what's going on at the moment. Can you just give us a a sort of indication? Do you think that these sorts of companies might well pull out of Scotland and pull out of UK waters if there's going to be such problems with them reaching market? Well, we've had one company, Grieg Seafood, who are a Norwegian business, pull out of their operations around the coast of Skye and in Shetland to concentrate on their Canadian and Norwegian operations. That happened just before Christmas. Now, in public, they said that Brexit was not part of that calculation. It was much more an operational and investment decision by the business. But privately, I think most of us take a take a view that Brexit ha- was a factor. The other companies that are operating in Scotland who are multinationals and have operations in Norway, Chile, the Faroe Islands and Canada, both east and west coast, absolutely take decisions about the marketplace. But they grow fish in Scotland because there is a premium price for it in the world market. It is a great place to grow fish. It is it is a good operating um, part of the world. So they do it for all the, as it were, the right reasons. But if, look, if, if life gets too difficult, you know what international business does. They up sticks and go. That's why it's so important we get things sorted out in, well, in weeks, not months and years. This thing's a muddle. Um, this thing is a, an absolute muddle. There's frustration. One of the things that I'm getting the, the sense of is if we'd had just a bit more time, if this hadn't been two days notice before it kicked in. Is that your, your take on it, Tavish? Yes. I mean, we, we we obviously, as an industry, wanted to make sure there was an, a continuing trading arrangement with the European Union. So we are pleased that that trading arrangement is is maintained, all but it's not as smooth as the one we would like to see, uh, or for that matter, what we used to have, which was seamless and easy from a from an export point of view. But your point, Monty, is bang on. The, the, the real problem we've got is this was sorted out on Christmas Eve, you know, we, I mean, I don't know how many times I heard ministers say this was going to be sorted out in very easily in October, if not earlier than that. Um, I suppose we all shouldn't have been so naive and recognise that a negotiation like this was going to go to the wire. But hey-ho, we are where we are now, so we've got to deal with it. Guys, 
Um, I know Tavish has got to go. Thank you very much for joining us, Tavish. And I know you've got a lot on, so we're going to let you go now. Okay. Thank you. Fine. Good to see you all. Bye-bye. Cheers. Thank you. We're going to bring in Jacqueline Moore now from Shepherd and Wedderburn because we've focused so far in this episode a lot, obviously, on trade. But um, Jacqueline, the other big aspect of this is is people. And I, I believe you're a people person. I am a people person and I'm delighted to be here because I'm also a farming person. Um, my family um, own a da- run a dairy farm. So the issue of supply of labour to farms is something very close to my heart. Um, growing up on the farm, there never seemed to be a problem for my father in the you know 70s, 80s, a constant supply of local people wanting to work on the farm. Of course, then, like many farms, we went through a process of it just being a real struggle. And then when the new member states started to come to the UK, Poles, Lithuanians, etc., all of a sudden, um, for dairy farmers across the UK and across uh, many other farmers, that problem came to an end. There was a, a plentiful supply of willing labour with a fantastic work ethic. And so, you know, I am very acutely aware from a personal perspective of just how difficult the end of free movement is going to be for many, many of the listeners to this podcast. So you're you're a um, family dairy farming background. What's what's your role with Shepherd and Wedderburn now? My role is head of immigration. Um, I've been an immigration lawyer for twenty years. I deal with all aspects of immigration, with a particular focus now on helping businesses, because of course. From the 1st of January, we have a completely new immigration system. And one of the fundamentals underpinning that system, which the government like to talk about quite a lot, is that EU nationals and non-EU nationals are going to be treated exactly the same. That means for your listeners that they are going to have to bring their get workers supplied through this new domestic immigration system. And it is a complex system and it's a costly system, but it's a system that's here. And what I know about farmers is that they're pragmatists. You know, this is a system we have. There's no point moaning about it. We just need to get on. But it is going to introduce a, an element of cost and an element of paperwork. And, you know, I think one of the other issues um, is whether or not the system is only is going to be able to supply the labour that farms and rural sector businesses need because there are limits to the type of roles that you can sponsor someone to come to the UK and work in. It's right across the sector, isn't it, George? Because, you know, we, we've come to rely on EU people in particular to to work in our food service sector and to work in our food production sector. Is that... Well, but again, that's that that's something that we were we were picking up on a lot in the aftermath of the referendum. There is a misconception that the immigrant workforce in the food sector is about fruit pickers and and labourers. It is much wider than that. Uh, Tavish was on talking about the position of Scottish salmon farmers. Um, salmon farming, for one, it relies extremely heavily on science. It's about disease prevention and control, microbiological and environmental management issues. If you go to a fish farm, the control room of a feed barge and the monitoring of temperature and monitoring of fish health and size and all of these things, 
that's science. Yeah, you need people with you, you're um, needing yeah. degree degree qualified degree level. people as well as you then go to the processing plants. You know that is uh, might be viewed by some as as labour. It's a production line, but you know there's a skill associated with it, and there's a lot of migrant workers deployed in these organisations. Archie, you're you're still with us. Yeah. What, what's your reliance on EU labour across the seed tatty sector? Well, the sector is very reliant on seasonal labour, predominantly East European, over the, over the last uh, couple of decades, and it's without question it's semi-skilled or skilled. Uh, which is very much George's point. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the chicken factory down the road in Cooperangus where there's 1,200 seasonal workers. The seasonal worker scheme has been increased up to, I think Jacqueline will keep me straight here, but it's, I think it's 30,000. The original figure was 2,500, administered by two agencies. There's now going to be four agencies, one of which will be Ringlink in Scotland. And this is vital because if you look at the soft fruit industry and the soft fruit sector alone, there's around about 14,000 seasonal workers required by the Scottish soft fruit industry alone over the course of the whole UK at an agricultural level. And again, Jacqueline will know the figures better than I, but I think it's in the region of 380,000 seasonal workers required. Now, they cannot be f- replaced from indigenous UK folk overnight. So the whole business of the immigration piece, settled status and you know their entitlement to work and, and all the rest of it is really, really fundamental to the food industry from primary production all the way through to sort of adding value and processing. George's example, the health manager, that is a role that can be sponsored. These roles can be sponsored. So businesses need to get a sponsor license so they can sponsor these employers. They need to check that they meet the rules on skill level. They also have to meet salary requirements. I think one of the issues people need to be aware of is there's also an English language requirement So you need to be able to speak English at higher level or above. So that might be an issue in in this particular sector. And the other issue is that you have to get a sponsor licence, but then there's various rules and regulations that you have to adhere to in terms of maintaining your licence. So I think for the roles that can be sponsored, that's just going to have to be the way forward. I think the bigger problem is what Archie was talking about is the gap between the volume of roles that needed to, need to be filled in these so-called lower skilled roles. So, for example, there's some farming roles that herd manager, you can sponsor herd manager, but you can't sponsor a labourer. You can sponsor a dairy herd manager, but not a dairyman. So there's a lot of peculiarities and there's, there's a lot of gaps in provisions it's going to be quite difficult going forward um, for these particular roles. So where do we go? Where do we go for people then? How do we get people? Archie, you, you want to come in on that? With the Angus Soft Root, Angus Grower Group, I, I was asked to go down and give some evidence along with uh, James Porter from Angus Soft Roots to the Parliamentary Affairs Select Committee on Labour Issues. And John Campbell of Happy Egg, I think, was there as well because the egg packing industry need people as well. And um, anyway, cut a long story short of let's say 1200 workers required on one particular farm they had i think i think they had about in the order of 3 or 400 resident local applicants for the job of that number by the time they had sifted them down they ended up with probably um about 60 people of the 60 people who got offered contracts to start maybe 20 survived the first two days and actually went on to work the whole season so the rest were brought in by chartered aircraft cleared through, you know, immigration, all the normal stuff, had all their papers sorted out, managed all this within the context of COVID, 
None of that was easy. And, you know, got the crop recovered and sold and presented into the supermarkets and sold into the, supplied into for consumers to purchase. So, you know, it was, a, it was a hugely complex undertaking and all added cost. Is it all going to be as complex again this year, Jacqueline? There's not going to be change on this anytime soon, but I think we have seen a massive uplift in the numbers for the seasonal workers scheme. And having dealt with working with the Home Office for 20 years, I think what's really important is that the lobbying continues because I think what will happen is that there will be schemes like the increase introduced over time. I mean, the Home Office have been told, you know, this evidence has been given time and time again by Archie, by James Porter, by various people in the industry. But it just takes time. But meantime, I think for people that don't have a, a, a license and can get one and have roles that are sufficiently skilled, I think it's just going to get t- take time for the government to listen and to, and to increase the numbers under schemes such as seasonal workers. The critical point with that, Jacqueline, is in order to demonstrate to government how much of an issue this is, then there will need to be hard evidence of shortages, the applications process that Archie referred to, and so on, in order to say, look, this is not just anecdotal or wish list lobbying. This is hard economic reality. We cannot, for whatever reasons within our society and economy, simply turn a light switch on and off and say, we cannot rely on migrant workforce, we should use the indigenous local workforce. There has to be tangible evidence that the system is not working. Absolutely. And I think it's on on everyone's shoulders to try and to keep that evidence and to feed it in to people who are representing um, people in the industry so that it it can go before the Home Office, it can go before the appropriate select committees and the right decisions can be made because that that is what we get back from the Home Office and points like this will show us the evidence, prove it. So that's absolutely critical and key. I normally like to wrap these discussions up on a on a sort of positive note, but given the situation, that's not going to be easy. But I guess this call for action is as good a point to sort of end on as, as we can. So what we're saying is, Across the board, whether you're exporting um, produce or whether you want to be employing labour, show the evidence, take the evidence, speak to pot, speak to your, your, the producer organisations, speak to the NFUS and make sure the message gets across to the politicians. Is that That's that's our main message from this, this podcast, isn't it? Well, the reason that people have such good and well-led and well-regarded membership organisations is precisely to enable there to be a focus. But an observation somebody made to me was that um, the trade agreement was not the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. And that's what we've got to appreciate. There is now a new relationship with the EU in trading terms. And what we've been talking about this morning in relation to potatoes and salmon and so on. These are technical barriers to trade. They're not tariff barriers. What we need to work with is the elimination of technical barriers to trade and in particular operational or systems barriers to frictionless trade because the ideal is frictionless trade, which of course is freedom of movement of goods and uh, and services. But we're now in a different environment. We just want as few obstacles as possible to uh, to to keep f- food products flowing smoothly, efficiently, and profitably. Yeah, one last thought from me, Monty, would be that um, 
we've seen through Scottish Development International some useful work done to highlight the quality, produce, provenance, all those positive attributes associated with premium Scottish products, not least whiskey, who are the past masters of doing it. Salmon, we've talked a lot about quite rightly. We need to see more of that at a UK level. You know, for, for our quality hallmark, if you like, we need government support. We need government complementary managing standards and tolerances and the rest of it. If UK government is serious about finding these new markets, then we need to see far more effort across the spectrum, whether it's lamb, uh, beef, potatoes or whatever it might be in order to open up new opportunities to replace what we're going to lose potentially through the EU through extra complexity more burdensome documentation uh, tariffs etc etc I can see another on-farm episode sometime in the near future looking at um, other avenues to trade and, and trading with the rest of the world we've focused a lot on, on, on Europe here obviously and Brexit but I can see something else in the pipeline. So well done, guys. Thank you very much. I, I, I really enjoyed that chat. Massive thanks to Shepard and Wedderburn, to George and to Jacqueline and to, to Archie and obviously to Tavish, who's who had to run off. But yeah, well done, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Monty, for the opportunity. Thank you. Well, goodness me, folks. I thought I had some worries on the sheep trade going forward, but I'm glad, if that can be the way of putting it, that I'm not in seed tatties or seafood anyway onwards and upwards and I hope you've heard that call from our guests and again reiterated by me to bring any issues that you face to your industry organisations try and bring them to the fore the more that the voices can be heard and, and problems raised hopefully the more attention can be paid by the powers that be As you'll know by now with these episodes, we always try to say thanks to everyone that we spot sharing and talking about On Farm on social media. We're always grateful. It's so, so helpful in spreading the word and letting people know that we're here. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share a link. Please recommend us. Please shout about us via your own social media channels. So, this week, or rather for last week's episode... Thanks to Beth Wells, Ruth Ann Baxter and Craigie's Farm. And to regular tweeters and huge on-farm champions, Philip Skuse, John McInnes and Jock Gibson. If I've missed you out, sorry, I apologise. Please make sure you tag us, particularly on Twitter, at on underscore farm UK. That way we've got a chance of spotting your posts. Next week, it'll be Anna with you. She'll be taking another look at AgriCoop umbrella organisation SEOS and particularly focusing on how Scottish farming can help in the fight against climate change. Anna will see you next week. <laughs>